where nobody knows your name is recorded in front of nobody. Hello and welcome to Where Nobody Knows Your Name, a Cheers podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Season 7, Episode 16, The Crane Makers, written by Fief Sutton and directed by Andy Ackerman. And I'm John. And I'm James. Oh, a modern episode, James. We're going to be dipping back to the 2nd of March, 1989, popping on the TV, and we're watching another classic episode of Cheers. I like this one. End of podcast. <laughs> this has been where nobody knows your name it's just shortest episode yet uh, now i like this one because it's a crane couple centric episode mm. yeah definitely it's, it's always good to see uh lilith and fraser in an episode together their, their on-screen chemistry is always stellar they're a great acting couple well they, they announced some big news at a cliffhanger a couple of episodes back when you were talking to barry and we get to see a bit of the aftermath in this one. We do indeed. Yes. Uh, Lilith is with child and she expresses her uh, thoughts on this. <laughs> There's overzealousness in that. <laughs> and we'll get into that. But first, the cold open. It's an interesting one because Carla is working a usual shift. And then uh, a stranger comes in called Whitley Morris. Hmm. And... He is a, a sort of, what do you attorney. call them? Attorney? An attorney, yeah. Someone who enacts what's written in a will, basically. Mm. And we hear a little bit about Carla's family history. Yeah, uh, Whitley Morris, the attorney, comes in to inform Carla of her grandfather's last will and testament and his wishes therein. Turns out, you know, he deserted Carla's grandmother in 1921, did uh, old Antonio Lozaponi. I find that date interesting because it implies that Carla is fourth generation because, you know, we watched The Godfather mm. recently. Uh, the Italian immigration into the United States was within the first decade of the 1900s. So this implies to me that uh, it was her great grandparents who first came over. Mm. And I thought that was interesting. Oh, that is an interesting. I never, never assessed the timeline, James. We find out that in uh, 1921, he uh, deserts her grandmother and he hops a freight to Los Angeles uh, with nothing but a lucky quarter. But he makes it big, James. He becomes a bit of a big shot. My name is Whitley Morris. I represent the estate of your late grandfather, Antonio Lozaponi. No doubt you know that Antonio deserted your grandmother in 1921. What you may not know is that he hopped a freight to Los Angeles that year, taking with him only his lucky quarter. He worked packing fruit until he raised enough capital to open up his own business selling candied peaches. With the profits from this, he invested in oil and, through judicious management of his funds, amassed a fortune well in excess of $20 million. Miss, can I order a beer? What do I look like, a waitress? Go on. On his deathbed, Antonio felt remorse for the family he'd left behind in Boston, and he made out a will leaving his entire fortune to the surviving Lozo Ponies, of which you are one. I guess you could call his investments fruitful. Uh, <laughs> have you, how long have you been planning that one, James? Well, let's not say that. It would be embarrassing if I told you the truth. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, he, he, uh, he becomes a bit of a, um, a fruit tycoon, doesn't he? Well, yeah, and then he uses that to invest in oil... Uh, and then he sort of builds up funds and fortunes in the excess of $20 million. 
Carla's got interested by this. Ultimately, she kind of goes, well, what does that mean for me now? And that's where the bad news comes in. Unfortunately, this was not discovered until the death last month of Antonio's unscrupulous, illegitimate son, Paolo, who suppressed the will and in 10 short years squandered the entire fortune on fast horses and loose women. What does that leave me? Grandfather Lozopone's lucky quarter. Well, yeah, it wouldn't be choose if they open an episode with Carla's rich now. She won't be coming back. <laughs> but now it turns out uh, Carla gets pittance from Antonio. Mm-hmm. Well, well, she finds out that her, uh, Antonio's unscrupulous, illegitimate son, Paolo, uh, suppressed the will for 10 years, blew all the money, and all she's got left is the lucky quarter that he began with. Yeah. As, as George Lucas would say, it's poetry. It, well, it's, it's poetry. <laughs> it's, um, it's almost Shakespearean, isn't it, in some regards? I think I've mentioned this before, but in the Godfather films, Coppola told Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, or the Corleone men to imagine they were Roman emperors, you know, heading over this, this empire. And conversely, for I, Claudius, they told Brian Blessed and John Hurt, etc., to imagine they were in the mafia. So, yeah, there is certainly a traditional and familiar narrative in this, you know, which you would see in things like Shakespeare plays. You know, King Lear is very similar to the, to the fall of Michael Corleone, for example. Does that bring us into the, the, the main episode, James? does, indeed, yes. We kick off this episode with Rebecca coming out of her office, having been on the phone with head office, I assume, and she's got a bit of an alarming discrepancy with Ooh. Woody. This makes Woody pretty anxious. He confesses that uh, he once had a till that was under and he put his own money in, but that's not the issue. The issue is he hasn't took holiday in his whole four years of being at Cheers. Yeah, <laughs> which because of this, Rebecca forces him to have holiday and he doesn't mm. want to have holiday, John. He likes being at Cheers. That's where his friends are. <laughs> yeah, when, when, you, when you do what you love, when you love what you want. Right, what's the saying, James? <laughs> it's, um, if you find a job you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life. Is, it that, what, is yeah, that what you're trying to that, say? That was what I was that was what I was trying to say. <laughs> so he hasn't took a day off. But um, uh, this is a quick sidebar, James. He definitely has. I'm pretty sure he has. Like unofficial days off. Just, oh yeah, Woody isn't here. But he's working. He's just he's just not here. A few episodes back, Rebecca was like, oh, you can have the day off, Woody. It's her fault for not reporting that. She was like, go on dates. Yeah, well, exactly. That wasn't a holiday. It's Rebecca's fault. No wonder she hasn't got promoted. <laughs> but, <laughs> she does come in a bit hot, hot flustered saying, what do you have to take holiday? Like, but your mental health, you'll get burnout. And he goes, well, I do feel a bit stressed now, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, After she shouts at him for a bit. <laughs> yeah, Rebecca's shouting at him. Take holiday, fool. What's interesting from this is that, you know, they, they tell him you know, to go abroad. At first he wants to visit his... They suggest visiting his folks, but, you know, Rebecca's like, no, if we're making him go on holiday, let's give him the best holiday we can. So, you know, he's uh, told he has to go abroad and turns out Woody's never gone abroad before, which isn't a surprise. Mm. I thought they played with that quite well, you know. Yeah, so Rebecca's kind of got a little bit of a mission to sort of make a sort of package holiday for Woody for him to sort of unwind and explore the world a little bit. And that's the sort of B plot of this episode, I'd say. Oh, yeah, I'd say so. Definitely. The A-plot begins when uh, Lilith walks through the doors at Cheers. 
Yeah, she's. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd say she's in. Uh, she's embracing her pregnancy. I think you'd say. Yeah, I I get it. I understand why she's why she's happy, but it's not something that we need to hear about. You know, I think if you've got nine months of that, you get real tired of it. You know. <laughs> Lay your hands upon me, everyone. I am life. <laughs> Oh, boy. I am mother. My man's seed is nourished within me. Touch my breasts, my friend. I am lactating. Latte is kind of first for me. Uh, but I'm going to pass. Forgive me for bursting in on you, but the little bud couldn't bear to be parted from his, her, daddy another instant. Whisper to him, her, through my navel. Um, later, after I finish this trick, perhaps a few more. Oh, Carla, sister woman. Why didn't you ever share with me the religious wonder of this experience when you were great with child? I was too busy puking. A small price to pay for becoming a fountain of life. A moist, nourishing acre of loam from which shall spring the future of the human race. <laughs> Speaking of puking, would you excuse me for I am a cradle of life. My womb is the Tigris and the Euphrates. I am a slender tendril reaching back to the primordial ooze. She's found a spirituality in, uh, in being pregnant and is kind of becoming one with nature, uh, sort of embracing that a lot. She does say that she's going to uh, plant her placenta under a tree. Okay. You you do you Lilith. <laughs> what what I found interesting is they not only as you say they found a new affinity with nature, but they also expressed sentiments similar to that of Greek mythology. You know, referring to Earth as you know like a mother Gaia. You know, for example. Mm. Yeah, it definitely showed the cultural background of Lilith and Fraser and their interests. Whereas Carla was just like, yeah, I'm pregnant, what of it? Come on now. <laughs> I think Carla first time might have been quite joyous, but after eight kids, you can I'd imagine you get tired of it. <laughs> and that is the thing as well. It's first child as well. So they're very much embracing it as that sort of new experience. And Lilith is uh, really becoming one with nature through the process of it. And this is slowly grated on Fraser uh, over time until the point of him snapping at her within the bar, saying that embarrassing her in front of his peers is, is a general ass, you'd say. Yeah, which, which I was going to say, it might be true, Fraser, but you don't say it. Want your partner to, to someone carrying your child. Just chill out, you know. <laughs> Yeah, like if say it to her in private, Fraser, you know, uh, in a much more gentler, diplomatic way. But it's an unfamiliar concept to me, uh, you know, how, being with child or having a partner being with child. But I understand in theory how it's exciting. I mean, you've basically led into this, and I'm sure you meant it. Uh, and Lilith replies, well, that's it for, for men. It's always in theory. Yeah, exactly. And then she says, for the mother, it's the deepest, richest, most moving, all-encompassing love you'd ever hope to imagine. And then says, but I'll suppress that thought, Euphrasia. 
Yeah, I mean, she's got a point. I do like Fraser's response of, Lilith, you misunderstand, I love it. And then the rest of the bar go, he's a dead man. And then Zornaus replies, yeah, I'll put the tag on his toe, close the drawer. Yeah. Like, you you gone messed up, Fraser. <laughs> he's got a lot of, uh, he's got to do a lot of, lot to get out of this and, and make it up to her, I'd say. Yeah. Following on from when he was a clown, you know, he, he put his big feet in, in his mouth is what he did there. Mm. Um, got to do better, Fraser. And actually we see the, the next day or so, Fraser's back at the bar and he's saying that she still hasn't forgiven him. And that he doesn't quite know what to do, I guess. Yeah, no. And uh, well, I think sleep on the sofa for a start is, is <laughs> first suggestion. <laughs> he gets uh, he gets some advice from Norm, who says uh, him and Vera have an agreement where uh, if they ever say something that they regret to each other, they'll never talk about it again. And it works like a charm. And then Fraser says, once you stop burying your feelings, you stop talking. And Norm goes, yeah, it's great. <laughs> that kind of idea. <laughs> Because works like a charm. During this exchange, and it was barely a plot, but it was just a nice, uh, I guess, almost brotherly moment, is Cliff has a box of chocolates that someone on his round gave him. Mm. And then Norm goes, ooh, ooh, chocolates, Cliff. Ooh, can I have, can I have one? And Cliff goes, yeah, yeah, help yourself, buddy. And uh, he eats one and he goes, no, you know, the trouble with the box of chocolates is you never know what you're going to get. So I, I've got to try and find my, my favorite one, the buttercream. So he tastes every chocolate and has <laughs> half of every one and goes, there wasn't a buttercream. But now the box is Norm's. He's laid claim to them, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, who's going to eat the other half of each chocolate? He knew what he was doing. Yeah, <laughs> this one is mine and this one is mine. <laughs> um <laughs> This one's a nougat. I remember that as a line. It is uh, quite a nice moment between them. Cliff doesn't seem too, too, he doesn't seem too upset, I'd say. It's just Forrest Gump going, the life is like a box of chocolates, never know what you're <laughs> going to get. And I'm just going, there's no buttercream. <laughs> uh, that's why it's useful to have an, a, a little chocolate index. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there was one. I just think Norm refused to to read it. He's the type of guy who, if he wasn't an, an interior decorator, I'd say he was the type of guy who would get a piece of Ikea furniture and refuse to read the instructions. Hmm. Figure he can make it. I'm sure we know a few men like this. Yeah, it's a You thing. can just guess. I mean, some of them are simple enough. But if you're looking at something more complicated, let's say a swinging bench, hmm. I imagine... If it's a metal one and you've got to screw all the pieces together, I imagine that could be quite complicated. <laughs> well, the next thing which happens at the bar, James, is uh, Norm is uh, Woody's gearing up for his holiday and Rebecca's got some good news because his passport's arrived. Well, hey. Yeah, he's, he's off to Italy, which should be nice. He's going to go to uh, a few towns in Italy. Yeah, maybe he'll meet, you know, some of uh, Carla's long lost cousins. Ah, perhaps. Maybe he should take the lucky uh, quarter with him for some good luck on his travels. Rebecca's really excited for him and starts recalling some of her memories of when she used to travel around Italy as well. Uh, but Woody is a bit preoccupied by reading the fine print in his <laughs> I love this exchange. <laughs> and look, it says here if I mutilate this passport, it renders it invalid. 
Suppose I'm just about to go through U.S. Customs, some crazy person breaks into my luggage, mutilates my passport, and fills my suitcase full of meat. That's a chance all travelers take. I think there's some real worries when traveling, James. You say you don't want, you don't want that to I happen, do you? I don't want a, I don't want a, a meat-wielding suitcase stuffer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, it's uh, I'm, I'm not awake yet, John. I immediately regret saying that phrase. <laughs> I'll try to move past. Um, well, I, th- I think he's looking forward to his holiday, despite his uh, initial worries. He's gearing up to go to the airport. He's got his passport now. He knows to avoid packing foreign meats and to hold onto his passport for dear life to make sure nobody mutilates it. My my dad got um stopped at security for a specific, for a particular food item which might be lost on our u.s listeners but they thought this food item was a bomb because it was the shape of a bomb and they saw that there was flammable (laughs) it contained a flammable item um so it's like yeah fair enough turns out it was a christmas pudding john so it was (laughs) doused in brandy (laughs) did they let him board with it or did they take it away uh they, they let him board with it but there was a various confusion when they were like what is in that bag? It's a circular item, you know, which, mm. you know, we can a see dense little... circular item. A dense circular item with little pieces inside it. What is it? <laughs> Open it up and just, <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh. well, I'm, glad he, I'm glad he got to keep it. Would have been disappointed if they took it away. I think he would have had a bah humbug moment. You're ruining <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's it's well, then, well. How would you describe it to US listeners? It's kind of like a um, it's like a fruit cake with less bread and more fruit. I'd say that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Douse it in brandy and set it on fire. But Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but amongst this conversation of uh, passports and uh, foreign meats, Lilith walks in and Fraser begins his sort of grovel. What do you call it? Grovel? He says, "There's my kanga with her little roux." And he says, do you feel butterflies or life fluttering within you? Shut up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she's come with a little bit of a plan where uh, she goes, so very plainly went, oh, as a doctor, I thought you might be interested in this. Pulls out a stethoscope, puts it to her stomach, gives him the earpieces, and uh, the baby's got a heartbeat. Lovely. Adorable. And then Frasier gets involved, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he becomes uh, one with Mother Earth as well. And he, I am he said, a life giver. <laughs> <laughs> They're all sort of on the same page after this. They're both um, feeling that sense of bringing something in into the world. And they go and uh, sleep naked on their roof. We don't see this scene, you know, because it is a family-friendly show. But that's what they go and do. They go and sleep naked on their roof so their baby yeah. can absorb the nutrients of the rain. Okay. It's, there's a great sort of line as they leave where uh, Lilith says they'll do that. Fraser says, why should we be ashamed? Our child will never be ashamed. And Carla just goes, want to bet? I think their child could easily be ashamed. Um, <laughs> but then they, then they return, don't they? Mm. Pretty soon after, Fraser's wearing jeans and a, and a blue shirt he looks like a kind of character stephen king would write about <laughs> the blue chambray shirt you know <laughs> um buttons and fabric are missing from the shirt because lilith made it <laughs> but they've uh, they've got a bit of an announcement haven't they 
Yeah, Lilith also is kind of dressed up like Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. uh, a little. But yeah, you're right. They do have an announcement. And it's that they, uh, they're going to live in the, in the wilderness, aren't they? Yeah, they say they're going to leave behind the 20th century, build a cabin of their own with their own two hands, and live sort of simply off the land. And they feel like that's best for their, their unborn child. Bring them up, one with nature. They seem enthusiastic about it. They've already put the plans in place, such as Fraser cancelling his practice, Lilith writing her notice to hand in. The guys at the, at the bar, they try to have words with them. They're going to go, yeah, calm down, right? You two are too much invested in this whole yuppie culture to enjoy the wilderness, you know? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. They've, they've already started severing ties, writing notices with jobs. Yeah. Uh, two or three episodes ago, two episodes ago, they were living the high life, going to the opera. Yep. Now all of a sudden they're going to cancel that. I don't see it happening. And neither did Sam. But Sam's got a suggestion to say, actually, Sam, first of all, begins by saying, you know, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. Kind of wants to tell them a bit of a story. And Norm goes, it's not about when you sold the bar and went on a boat, is it, Sam? Sam has to go, no, no, no. No. It's, uh, it's a friend who bought a truck <laughs> and then drove around around the world. <laughs> I th I like how they've got real tired because it's been a year and a half since <laughs> Sam's come back after his boat crashed. And you, yeah, but um, Sam does know a friend who does own a cabin in the woods who uh, would be l willing to lend it to them for the week. So it's a sort of <laughs> coincidentally, uh, the cabin is in Maine. Yeah, Stephen King. Stephen King. Yeah. If you went, there's a cabin in the woods, Stephen King has been there. You'd be like, I don't want to go there. It's in Maine, <laughs> the hotspot of many Stephen King stories. <laughs> yeah. You've seen Misery? But yeah, so they, they say, oh, you know what, that, that would be a good time to test whether we'd like to live in this, this kind of way. So they agreed to go there. And now, James, we're looking at two holidays. The, the cranes are heading off. And now Woody's also heading off as well, because he's got his trip to Italy He's left the bar and he's he's on his merry way to enjoy his time off from work. Yeah, I think I'd prefer Italy. But, you know, I uh, I'm sure I'm sure you've, you know, stayed over at a cabin or some other kind of countryside camping before, which, you know, has its merits. I tell you what, James, I've I've done both sides of this, but once we um during during uni we we booked an Airbnb which was in in a cliff face. It was it was like a cave house, but it, it had electricity and stuff. But there was a, like a wood chopper. But what we didn't realize was there were there was only one bed, so we had to sort of sleep on animal pelts. It was a it was a very strange scenario. You can share a bed. But animal pulse sounds really decadent. You, you you lying there like Burt Reynolds or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a fancy cave. Oh, as opposed to your regular caves. Yeah. Well, well, we thought, oh, it might be quite cold. But then there was underfloor heating, so we were roasting by the morning. Under cave heating? Un under cave heating. It was, it was a weird one. A weird place to stay. But chop, chop some wood. It was a nice, nice weekend. Did you feel manly? Chopping wood. Yeah, I did. As soon as we got there, I um I wanted to run up the top of the cave, like over over it, but then I, I fell down and landed in a puddle of mud and I had no change of trousers. So. Well, that's your fault. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> it was my fault. <laughs> I came tumbling down and it was just in the mud for the weekend. Was well, you know pride cometh before <laughs> the fall, John? <laughs> 
But conversely, I've spent time in Italy. That was very nice. Got the ice cream. Didn't you go to a Cheers location while you were in Italy? It was the same location that Fraser and Diane were supposed to go to to get that's married. That's it. Yes, that's it. But this was inadvertently. Ah. We'd watched the episode nine. I went, I've been there. <laughs> I recognise that place. And that was in Florence, I believe. Ah, so, you know, nice travels. Nice to talk about travels. It is, yeah. We do see the cranes arriving at the cabin. They're confident going in there, aren't they, James? They think they're going to master nature. Yeah, uh, the thing they're going to master nature is so much so that Fraser, <laughs> Fraser has what I can only describe or what reminds me of, and this might be a niche reference, but it reminds me of the Tesla Edison debate because Fraser sees a light bulb and immediately throws it into the snow. <laughs> and uh, if you know about Tesla and Edison, they were around the same time. Tesla, you know, had a lot of inventions regarding electricity, but he had made them public. You know, he made the patent public mm. and therefore they couldn't be monetized in the same way. So uh, there you go. Yeah. So he throws the light bulb out the, out the door. He discards the, the one bit of electricity that they kind of have there. And then he sets out to try and make a fire. I find it odd that they're trying to make a fire with rocks, but they don't have any... <laughs> I don't think that works. I don't think you can make a fire just with rocks alone. No, you, you need flint, don't you? Flint sparks. Rocks don't necessarily spark. You need, yeah, you need... Kindling. They're, you know, they're using old old newspapers, which, you know, could set a light. But if they've been there a while, maybe not, you know. I, t- I tell you what, there was a great exchange before they started, which is, uh, Frazier says, where are the matches? Lilith goes, I thought you brought them. He says, are you telling me that you didn't bring any na- matches? And she goes, no, I'm telling you, you didn't bring any matches. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I like being able to light fires. That sounds like a pyromaniac. What I mean is when it when it's for like a barbecue or something, there is a strong sense of achievement and accomplishment when you've lit, when you've set the fire yourself, you know. Mm. Yeah. As we've kind of alluded to, they're struggling to light the fire, aren't they, John? Yeah, it's not nice when you can't light the fire. No, it's, it's that gets very, frustrating quick, doesn't it? It does get very frustrating. Interestingly, Fraser asks Lilith to sing a song, you know, like a like a work song. <laughs> Uh, she apparently only knows one song, which is a lie, and I'll get onto this. But uh, what's the one song she sings? Funny Valentine. And she sings it beautifully. She's got good singing voice, does BB Newer. <laughs> However, it's not the one song she knows. She knows at least one other song. Do you know what that song is? I can give you a clue. I mean, does, is it when they all sang in the Christmas episode? I wasn't thinking of that one, uh, which was... Because that was Old Lang Syne, wasn't it? Yeah. No, I was thinking oh, it's more of a pop song, I'd say, as in popular okay. song. It's not, a, it's not a carol. Oh, I don't know then. I can give you a clue. Mm. It has recently been removed from Spotify at the uh, songwriter's request. Oh, I don't know, James. It's Our House by uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Oh, yeah, of course. Interestingly, and I thought this was... Sing it at dinner at eight-ish. They do indeed. Do you want to know an odd... Um, I think it's irony. Do you want to know what's odd about uh, not remembering that song? The fact they're in a house? That and <laughs> the opening line of that song is, I'll light the fire. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been more fitting than... Well, I suppose that's the point. Funny Valentine was not fitting at all. 
Yeah. <laughs> would have been fitting. We get a time jump later on and she's still singing Funny Valentine and Fraser is, I would say, weary. <laughs> I am weary of you. <laughs> not, not not only of her song, but also the frustration of having spent so much time trying to light a fire, which was never going to light. They've, they've uh, Their dream of living off the land and simple life where they go out and kill their own animals and, and forage their own food... As they've had a sort of an awakening, a rude awakening of realising that's not going to be a possibility. And Lilith starts reading the newspapers as well and uh, reading out some stories about local restaurants that they used to go to. She found a Boston one, didn't she? Yeah. yeah. And they make quite a, a quick decision that maybe that life isn't for them and they'll go back to where they where they were originally. Yes, where they were comfortable. You know, they, they go, ooh, this sounds delightful. Tarragon glaze. Ooh, creme brulee. I remember that. That was, that was fantastic. Ridiculously expensive, though. However, when, when they feel their, their mouths salivating, they, uh, they decide to hurry on back to Boston to get some of that tasty, tasty, yuppie delights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of returning, it cuts back to, what, a couple of weeks later? Yeah, with Woody returning from his uh, holiday. He had a lovely time. He did. He got no tan, but there's a reason for that, James. <laughs> there, is a, there is a reason for that. It's because he did uh, the old uh, Tom Hanks, didn't he? Uh, <laughs> I, think that's, I think that makes sense. The terminal. He stuck at, stuck yeah. at the airport. Missed his flight. But Woody being Woody, he just had a delightful time talking to strangers at the airport, which I can actually see the merit in. And Woody explains it quite accurately. There is a joy in interacting with new people and, you know, having a kind of cultural exchange. When you said that uh, he did a Tom Hanks, I wasn't sure if you were going to go to a terminal or Forrest Gump, because he sat sort of on a bench and just sort of made a conversation with whoever sat next to him, had a good conversation, a good time, waved them off and... Uh, <laughs> you know, life is, li- life is like a box of chocolates. There's never buttercream. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a nice time and... Uh, I think the thing which he found most fascinating was he was from Indiana and he met someone from India. So Whoa. I said, what are the odds? That is quite something. Yeah. <laughs> and then for our sort of closing lines of this episode is Lilith and Fraser discussing how, how what's the quickest way they can get back home. What, one of them says, if we drive 70 all the way, they'll make it in time for a 10pm seating at La Porta. And then the the, the replies will charter a plane. The beauty of civilization, you can buy anything. They engage in their in their delights, don't they? Their, their, their homely, homely comforts. And I tell you what, James, you mentioned uh, Dorothy Gale earlier on. There's no place like home. That could be could We could end with that. That's a, a nice phrase. But also, when you do what you love, you don't work a day in your life. What, what was the phrase? I forgot it again. When you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, and I think that's a good sentiment for this episode because both both sort of character stories and character arcs went out thinking they wanted to find something else, but really they just got the call to come home. That's what they enjoyed. That they did. And I think before uh, Cliff arrives with his trivia, uh, there's a brief cast, but worth mentioning. James Winkler, not related to Henry Winkler. You can cut that out right now. James Winkler as Whitley Morris. He also appeared in Lou Grant, Knott's Landing, St. Elsewhere, Remington Steel, Skeleton Coast, Purgatory, and many more. Peter Shiner as Pete, 
Michael Holden as customer. He previously appeared in season five, episode 10, Everyone Imitates Art, and Philip Pullman as Phil and Al Rosen as Al, both uncredited. It's a brief guest list there. Oh, thanks, Cliff. He's brought some chocolates as well, Don. Oh, delicious. Yeah. Were there any buttercreams? I'll have to try them and (laughs) (laughs) tell you you when I find it. (laughs) But as usual, before we open our letters, we have to give a shout out to our norms on Patreon. So this goes out to Treb Curry. If you want that special norm treatment, then check out our Patreon page for that and so much more. I'll kick off with a question, James. In this episode, we found out that Woody was counting the receipts in October. It was short, and he put his own money in there to, to make up. But how short was it, James? Three, three fifty-two, three dollars fifty-two, three forty-seven. So close. Um, I'll take that. I'm close with that. A lot of travel talk in this episode. What site from Cliff's travels? have given him a new slant on life. Do you know what, James? I had the same question for you. Yeah. And he says, you haven't lived till you've seen Bonanza dubbed in French-Canadian. Yes, which uh, is nice. Do you think that was when he was visiting Maggie? I'm not sure. I think it was the expo, when he went to uh, the expo. Of course, yeah. yeah. In, in, in Canada. Do you know what Bonanza is in French-Canadian? And the, Like the literal translation, no? I was just going to assume it's... La Bonanza. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought you had some uh, proper facts there, James. No, just uh, my old (laughs) speculation. (laughs) What locations are on Woody's vacation? Uh, I believe he's going to Florence as part of it. Yeah. Uh, Does he start in Pisa? No. And I think he goes to some mountains. You you got it wrong, but you, you had it with the same kind of emotional sentiment that Woody was saying where he went Venice, Florence, Seven Hills or something I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I got the middle bit right yeah exactly we heard about Antonio Luzaponi but what was his journey James what was his timeline how did he make his money are you looking for dates or just or just career path a career path Uh, lucky quarter Mm-hmm. Earned some money in Vegas. Used that money to open up a fruit packing business specializing in candied peaches. Used mm-hmm. the profits from that to invest in oil and amassed a fortune of 20 million. Yeah. He, he sort of had judicious management of his funds. Said, I'd quite like, uh, like to try those candied peaches, I reckon. I would like to also. Yeah. I've never had a candied peach. I think the closest I've had is, is a candy apple, you know, when you're bobbing. I reckon it would be a bit like a, like a, a peach pie, but without the crust. I think it would be an interesting one because peaches are quite soft, aren't they? So if you had them candied, you get a hard shell, but a soft center, you know. I think I, well, that sounds delicious to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, preparing for his trip to Italy... Woody tries to learn some basic phrases. Here is one of them. Sono stato rarendemente straziato in un disastro fraviario. Per favore, spertini. What is the translation of this phrase? It's something about a train accident. That's all I can remember. It is, yeah. It's a, it's a basic phrase which he's trying to learn, which means I have been hideously mangled in a train accident. Please shoot me. <laughs> 
<laughs> just the necessities that he needed there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd be a little bit impressed if after being mangled and you're in that much pain, you were still able to speak a foreign language. <laughs> you know, just... I think it would surprise you. I'll tell you what, though, his Italian accent, I, I'm not Italian, I don't know what a genuine one sounds like, but it sounded pretty good. It sounded much better than Jared Leto's in House of Gucci, I think. I've not watched House of Gucci, but I'll take your word for it, James. I hated his performance so much that I use any opportunity to, to point out how bad it was. Um, but yeah, no, Woody's, I was, I was quite like, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty, pretty good, you know? I'm sure actual Italian speakers would find faults in it, but to my ears, it didn't sound stereotypical. You've already said which restaurant is reviewed. It was uh, La Porta's, which just means the door. Stupid. Mm. Fancy. But the door. It's, I once saw a hotel called Mi Casa, and I think that's a stupid name for a hotel because it means <laughs> my house. Surely you want to call it Su Casa. Not not my house. Like that sounds oddly possessory. Not welcoming at all. <laughs> James has opinions. <laughs> and again, uh, how much Was does that the question? <laughs> uh, how much does dinner at Laporta's cost? Was it two hundred dollars? Yeah, r- ridiculous. That's crazy money. It is crazy money. The cranes need to find a middle ground. They do. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. <laughs> I, uh, well, the most I think I've ever spent on one meal was probably £70. For just one one person eating? From just me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, it was a, it was a I think it was, it was my, my cousin's birthday and we had a, like six course menu with a glass of wine for each uh, <laughs> different wine for each course to be paired with what the course was you know um so you know not a bad price at all if you're having six glasses of wine i'm trying to think what the most expensive meal i've had is i think i'm fairly cheap james oh yeah don't, don't get me wrong <laughs> like that's not my go-to uh, my go-to oh, yeah, is yeah, probably yeah. between i say i like a meal deal <laughs> like a meal deal from from you know the the the, the supermarket. <laughs> you, you don't get your wine in the meal deal, though, do you? No, I'm not. Well, you need to be a member of. You need to be a member to get the wine, and uh, you know, I am. Um, uh, I wouldn't want to be a part of any club which would have someone like me as a member. <laughs> to quote Groucho Marx, I think. <laughs> uh. Well, that's the last call, James. It is. Yeah, I think there's a lot to choose. So I think candied peaches sound delightful. Yeah, I want to try the candied peaches. The Loza Pony special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, Carla got her lucky quarter this episode, you know, and you, some would say you could call it a tip. And, you know, if you want to tip us with, with pittance, we're fine with pittance, aren't we, John? Then Then check out our Patreon page, you know. You get benefits from Patreon as well. You get access to our bonus episodes. You get named in uh, every one of our episodes, as well as our newsletter. Yep, a monthly newsletter as well. So uh, if you feel like dropping us a lucky penny or a quarter, quarter would be preferable, <laughs> please head over there. <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> Just, um, yeah, no, it's uh, a lot of good stuff we got going on there. Yeah. So check it out. Back to those candy peaches, James, because I want to get, get the tin open around. I'm going to... A picture there in a tin, aren't they? I imagined it was, you know, served like a candy apple, you know, 
Oh, I was picturing like a syrupy tin of peaches. Well, why not both? Why not both? (laughs) You can have your candied peach. I'll have a candied peach. (laughs) I'll be slurping a tin. (laughs) I'll be be crunching into a... Well... This is... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try one more time, James, and, and when you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. This has been Where Nobody Knows Your Name, a Cheers podcast. Did I get it right? Yeah, close enough. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.